invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19 this morning. Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus came to to earth the first time, the disciples certainly must have been frustrated with the way that He led because Jesus revealed Himself to the disciples as the Messiah, the Promised One. The Messiah was supposed to be a conqueror. He's supposed to come in judgment. He's supposed to uh, right all the wrongs. He's supposed to remove Israel from oppression. So the disciples are following Him and Jesus comes so in His first coming so unabrasively that they must have been frustrated that, that He didn't come to set up the kingdom that they were expecting. But that's because Jesus didn't come the first time to set up His kingdom. He would not do that until later. Now, certainly the kingdom uh, would have been set up if the Jews would have accepted Him, but, but that was the contingency. That's what the Old Testament said. The Jews have to repent. And because, in general, the Jews, uh, represented by their leaders, did not repent, Jesus was killed, and He said He would rise after three days and that the, the, the gospel was now going to spread to the Gentiles, but He would come back again a second time. And then He would set up His kingdom. He would come like that conquering king we, we would expect. In His first coming, He rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, which symbolized not victory, but peace. He came gently, meekly. When He comes the second time, He is going to be riding on a war horse. And He will not be coming gently or meekly, but in judgment. All the Scriptures have been pointing to this future time that we're going to come to when we get to chapter 20, where God will be among His people and He will dwell with them. And they will be His people and He will be their God. God had dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. God had dwelled in a veiled way in the tabernacle and then in the temple. God dwelled with His people in a limited sort of sense when Jesus came to the earth. And I say limited because Jesus wasn't everywhere at once uh, while He was on the earth. He was a human, so He was localized. God dwells with us now through the special administration of the Holy Spirit. But when the millennial kingdom comes, chapter 20, we'll see that God dwells with His people through the person of Jesus Christ in all of His glory. And that will lead into the eternal kingdom where God will actually dwell among us. His special presence will be among His people. And, and Christ will reign. Christ will be seen as the King. What the disciples were longing for and what we should be longing for, for Christ to rule over His enemies and ultimately to rule over His people, is still coming. And we should still look forward to that when Jesus is seen by all as the King of Kings. Revelation chapter 19 we're going to give our attention to verses 11 through 21. So let me begin reading with verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This section of Scripture is about Christ coming to the earth. Christ comes as the King. In order for Him to set up His kingdom, chapter 20, He first needs to clear out all the mess that's on the earth. Specifically the evil that's going on, the evil that people that oppose Him. And so He comes as King to take over His territory, the earth. And before He can do that, He has to destroy all of His enemies, including the the beast and the false prophet and their followers. Notice in verse 1 that the marriage and reception uh, took place in heaven, it says, after these things I heard something like a voice of great multitude in heaven. We saw that in verses 1-10 through 10, that, that there's this great marriage that takes place between Christ and His church, followed by the reception in heaven where you have the marriage supper of the Lamb where all these people, Old Testament believers, uh, tribulation martyrs, the angels, they're all able to come in attendance and enjoy the, the fellowship, the, the joy of seeing Christ wedded, wedded to His bride, the church. But now, verse 11, notice that it's the, the scene shifts from heaven to earth. Verse 11 reads, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And it says that He comes down, and with Him the, the, uh, the armies come with Him on horses as well. And so what we're talking about here is the arrival of the king. We have the arrival of the king in verses 11 through 16, and then we have the destruction of the enemies in verses 17 through 21. So let's begin by looking at the arrival of the king, verses 11 through 16. We see his identity in the first three verses. Uh, first, we see his appearance. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. 
We already saw a rider on a white horse in chapter 6. Turn back there with me. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We saw a rider on a white horse. Now we have this rider coming. We're trying to identify him in chapter 19. Chapter 6, verse 1 reads, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come. And then here's the first seal. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. John here sees a vision at the opening of the tribulation judgments. Remember, first Jesus appears to John in chapter 1. Then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has a message to the churches. And then in chapter 4, we have this view of the throne room of God and the Lamb sitting on the throne who is the only one who's worthy to open the scrolls. Now the scrolls are finally opened, chapter 6. And this begins the tribulation judgments. As He opens the first scroll, this first white horse comes. And He, he, he comes to conquer. And, and the idea there is that He, he comes in war. The next three horses that are mentioned in verses 3 through 8 in chapter 6 are all evil angels. They're all evil agents of God's judgment. You have the, the one who, who comes uh, on a red horse and he, he brings war. And then the, the, uh, the next one comes on a black horse in verse 5 and he brings famine. And then you have the, the ashen or the gray horse in verse 8 and he brings death. So, so in this first part of chapter 6, you have these four seals being broken and four men on horses come to the earth. Four uh, probably demons here. And so this first rider, the point I'm, why I'm drawing you to here is because he comes on a white horse. Christ is in heaven during this time. I mentioned that, that Christ is, is up there at the throne of God. And so he's not here riding this horse horse rather this is someone else and since these other three evil agents are uh, are not of of God in the sense that they're they're uh, they're not uh, they're not good angels or agents of God then this first one also must be as well and this first horse this first rider is really as I mentioned when we looked at this in chapter 6 is, is most likely the Antichrist that he will come and reign at the beginning of his uh, at the beginning of the tribulation. And he will start to reign. He's called in Daniel chapter twelve a little horn. He starts as a small figure in the world, and this is where he starts to 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 come and exert his influence. Remember, the the tribulation begins with a treaty between the antichrist and the Jews. That, that He is going to settle everything in the temple so that they can get back to the temple and worship. And as He does this, he, he starts to make a name for Himself until at the midpoint of the tribulation He comes to the rise of His reign whenever everyone recognizes that they can't stand up against this man. So in chapter 6, we have the Antichrist coming on a white horse. And turn back to chapter 19 because that's the same kind of horse that Christ comes on. And we should not be surprised by this because the Antichrist seeks to mimic the true Christ. And so he comes on a white horse appearing to be the king of all kings. And in some sense, he is the king of all kings. He is 
the king of all the earthly kings up to that point. But there will be one greater than he. And that is, that is the one that we see here in chapter 19, verse 11, coming on a white horse. Notice further his appearance in verse 12, that his eyes are a flame of fire. When John first saw the Christ in chapter 1, he described Jesus in this way in verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. John had trouble understanding, comprehending this vision that he saw, and so he tried to explain it the best way that he could, and he said that his eyes were like a flame of fire. This probably is both literal and symbolic. That is, literal in the sense that he, his eyes really looked like flaming fire, but symbolic for the fact that Christ has a penetrating gaze, that He sees all the way to the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, that it's not just externals that He sees. When believers rule during the, the Millennial Kingdom, they are not going to be able to see the thoughts and the intents of people's hearts. And so they will do their best to rule based on facts, evidence, and so on. But, but, but Christ, as the King, as the ultimate judge, will be able to rule based on how people, uh, how people intend, what they are thinking. And this is the idea, I think, of the flaming fire type of eyes. Or at least they look that way. And he is a judge and He will be able to see all that there is. So He comes on a white horse John sees him again with the eyes of flaming fire. And then verse 12 tells us that he has many diadems or many crowns on his head. The second part of the verse. This shows that he is the true king. You remember the Antichrist, when he comes, he has, uh, he has crowns on his head as well. He has seven heads and ten, ten, uh, ten heads and seven horns. And, um, and he is said to, to rule in some way, showing his power that that He has all these kings give them their, His power, and yet Christ comes with diadems on His head showing that He is the true ruler. Verse 13, we see more about His appearance, that His robe is dipped or His clothes is dipped in blood. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this blood is here. It could be blood from the, the battle that He's about to win. Remember, He's about to pour out the, the, uh, the wine of God's wrath. That He's, he's going to be uh, God's agent of judgment here at this battle of Armageddon. And so it could be that this robe is dipped in blood to, to kind of uh, foreshadow this blood that He's going to get in this, this battle that's about to happen. But more likely, it's probably the blood from the battles that He's already won. The battle against sin. The battle against death. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead, death became dead to Christ. No longer could death hold Him. He tore the bars of sin and death, we sing. And therefore, we know that we can conquer death in Him. So He's, he's already conquered sin and death and Satan. And so likely this blood symbolizes the blood that He, he has on His robe from those battles. And now he comes to execute his plan. And really, there's not going to be a whole lot of interaction. There's not going to be a lot of, there's not going to be any hand to hand combat between Jesus and his enemies. He simply will, as we'll see, speak his word and they will all die. So, his appearance. The next thing we need to notice about this person in verses 11 through 13 is his names. 
In order to identify this man, we need to see his names. Notice verse 11. He's on a horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This points us back to chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus describes Himself as being faithful, the faithful and true witness. You, you can count on Me because I am true. I am faithful to My promises. Notice at the end of verse 12, He has a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself. Why can't anyone know this name? It could be because God is infinitely greater than us and we simply cannot express what this name is. When John sees the name, he, he, can't, he can't put it into words, what it means. Paul did this when he had a vision of Christ, he, or, or a vision of God. He said, I, I, I had this vision, but it's, it's inexpressible words. I can't put into words what I saw fully. And perhaps that's what's going on here with this name that nobody knows except himself. Or it could simply be that no one knows his name right now. That for John, it was unrevealed to him. But at the time of judgment, when Christ comes with His armies, who we'll see is the church, when He comes with them, then they'll know that name. But until then, it's unknown. The name that no one knows except Himself. And, uh, and that's hidden from us until the Lord's return. It's, it's similar to the names that we will receive. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus talked to the churches there and He said, you're going to receive a name. You're going to receive a name on a, on a white stone and no one else will know it. The idea there is that we don't know this name that God gives to us. But there will be a day when that is revealed to us. And, and when it is, perhaps that will be the same time in which Christ's special name is revealed to Him. Remember, it's hard to, to put one single name on God or on Christ because they are so uh, exhaustive. It's hard to, to pin one name on them. And that's why God, the Scriptures are filled with names for God. That He is the God who sees. That He is the God who hears. That He is the Almighty, the Judge. He is the I Am. It's hard to, to even comprehend that, that phrase when, when Moses says, who, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell him I Am has sent you. And the idea that that phrase is, is, is difficult to understand, but I think the point is that it's, it's I Am who I Am. I will be whom I will be. Inexpressible in that way. But perhaps it will be more clear when, we, when Christ comes in His glory. Third name we see. We see faithful and true. Then we see a name which no one knows. And then the third name is in verse 13. And that is, He is called, the second part of the verse, the Word of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. can't think of a more descriptive and powerful way to see Christ as the Word of God than how the writer of Hebrews does it here in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Christ is the Word of God because He is the best revelation of God. Notice verse 1 of chapter 1 in Hebrews. 
God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through Him, through whom also He made the world. And notice verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory. So you need to understand those pronouns there. And He, Christ, is the radiance of His, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. So, here's what, here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. At the, in the past, God had spoken in many times and in many ways. And we can think of all those ways. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through dreams. He, he spoke through His, his, uh, his mediator, His man, His... His leader. He spoke through through miracles, His mighty acts. And now the writer of Hebrews says in, in verse 2, but now He's spoken in a much better way. And that is through His Son. And verse 3 tells us that He is the exact representation of, of who God is. Do you want to know what the Father is like? Look at the Son. Do you want to know how the Father thinks about sin, how He cares for people, look at the Son. Jesus is called the Word of God in Revelation chapter 19. You can turn back there. Because He is the exact representation of God. And I think John understood this point. John in chapter 1 of his Gospel says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And this special name that John has for Christ, the Word. And we know that he's speaking of Christ because down in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and He dwelled among us. And He was full of grace and truth. That is Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. He is. You want to see God reveal Himself to His people? Look at Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. And really, the Word that we have in front of us is Jesus Christ revealed to us in words. It is even the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, He showed them from the Old Scripture how the Old Testament Scriptures were talking about Him. And obviously the New Testament is all about Jesus Christ as well. And so we have this third name. First, faithful and true. Second, a name which no one knows. Third, the Word of God. And then finally in verse 16. At the end of the verse, he has this name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. If we were to just, if we were to be here during, during the tribulation and we were to watch the Antichrist rule and we would think about it from a, a purely human, a purely uh, means of human reasoning. We would think that the Antichrist is the, the king of all kings, that he is the supreme king, that, that in history past there has been no king like him because he, he comes back to life. And He continues to reign. He puts people under His charge. He rules in every aspect of the world. 
In religion, He is the King of kings. In commerce, you have to get the mark of the beast. He is the King of kings. In politics, you cannot defeat Him. He is the King of kings. So if we were here, from a, a simply a human reasoning type perspective, we would say, He is the King of kings. But now what we see is that this man, the Antichrist, is no match for the real King of Kings. He is no match for our King, for Jesus Christ. And so, his identity and his first few verses point clearly to Jesus Christ coming. No one would argue that this is some other character other than Jesus the Messiah. So we see his identity first in verses 11 to 13. Now let's notice his activities. His activities are found in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Then look back up to verse 11 because we see at the end of the verse what he does. In righteousness he judges and wages war. So this one who is faithful and true, this one who is the King of kings, he comes to wage war and to enact his righteousness, to carry out his righteousness in the world. This is not arbitrary uh, dealing with people. Like, I don't really like you people, I'm going to get rid of you. Many kings have done that in the past. I don't like you because you're a certain ethnic... No. Christ comes in in a a concrete way. You have specifically sinned against Me and My Father. And therefore, I come to rule, to to judge. The evidence will be clear. And these people will be destroyed. Now, when Christ comes, He comes in verse 14 with His armies. It says there He comes with His armies. Who are these armies? Notice where they come from the armies which are in heaven. So these armies come with, with Christ. Now there are three options for who this, these armies are. First, believers. The, the believers come with Christ at this judgment and wage war with the enemies. Second, could be all angels. That the angels are these armies that come with Christ. Or third, it could be both angels and believers. Now, it has to at least include believers. Okay, So it has to be either options um, one or three. I think we can eliminate angels only, the second option. Because remember what happens prior to this event. What happens in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10? Jesus Christ gets married to His bride, the church. Alright, so... so would Jesus Christ ever leave His bride? Would He ever just leave her home and, and spend time away from her? Not likely. I don't think from that point on, in fact, the reason I know that is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. When Paul says that when the church is, is uh, raptured to be with Christ, he finishes that section by saying, so will we ever be with the Lord. Or you could say it this way. So we will never be separated from the Lord again. Okay, so Christ will not be separated from His bride, the church. 
In in First uh, Thessalonians chapter three verse thirteen, Paul refers to the return of Christ as the coming of the Lord with all His saints. So when you think about the coming of the Lord, when He actually comes to the earth, when He touches down on the earth, you should also picture with Him all of His armies, all of His saints. And I think that's specifically referring to the church age saints. Notice in verse 14, we have a clue of who these armies are. In the second part of the verse, it says, they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they are following Him on white horses. Look back up to verse 8, because this is how the church is described in verse 8. Let's start with verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So we're talking about the, the bride, the church. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5 last week. Verse 8. It was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So I think we have a clear picture here that verse 14 is referring to believers, that is, the believing church. It probably does not refer to Old Testament believers or tribulation believers because they will not be resurrected until after Christ's return. We will talk about that next time when we look at chapter 20. That that the Old Testament believers, their bodies are still in the ground. Now, their spirits obviously are are in heaven, but but their bodies are still in the ground. At the end of the the uh, the millennial king, or I'm sorry, at the end of the tribulation, after this battle of Armageddon, those bodies will be raised to. To, uh, to live with Christ in the kingdom. But until that time, uh, their bodies, so they don't have the glorified bodies like the church age believers do. It probably does not include the angels either. Um, it appears from Matthew chapter 24 that they're going to come to collect all the surviving believers on the earth, that that's one of their jobs, and that will not happen until after this victory. So I would argue that this, these armies are the church only. Now, notice his authority in verse 15. His authority. We've seen his appearance, uh, his identity, his activities, and now his authority. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Here he is pictured as having a sword, a sharp sword, coming from his mouth. John in chapter 1 verse 16 described Christ in the same way. When he saw the exalted Christ, he saw him with a a sword coming from his mouth. This is probably symbolic of his power that, that Jesus can destroy like we would use a sword to inflict judgment on someone. Jesus can do it with his mouth, with mere words. He can accomplish something. Just like God spoke all things into existence at creation. Just like God or or Christ raised Lazarus from the dead just with His words. So He can destroy all of these on the earth with His words. And I think that's the, the idea there. We should not be surprised by that. God often uses, kills enemies without weapons in Egypt. Uh, when Egypt was following the people of Israel into the Red Sea, they were destroyed without weapons. Um, 
185,000 soldiers of Sennacherib were killed in one night outside of Jerusalem apart from any weapons. And so God can do these things. We should not be surprised by this. With other kings, this would be impossible. Because with most kings, with all kings except for our king, their strength is determined by the strength of their army. If a king is over a certain is sovereign over a certain land or people group, they're not going to be very strong if they don't have an army or if their army is weak. The strength of the king is based on the strength of the army, but not with Christ. The strength of he, him as king is on his person. In fact, the armies don't do anything. The armies that come along with him here in chapter 19, they don't do anything. They don't come with weapons. They simply follow along in horses, showing their victory. And it says there in verse 15 that he will rule them with a rod of iron. This comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, where all the nations of the earth, out, they are outraged against God and they fill up the earth with, with their rage. And yet, Christ will rule them with a rod of iron. But it seems to be more than that, not just these enemies. He will also rule His own people because in Psalm chapter 2, it's talking about a millennial uh, type of context. And uh, it's the, the word actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 2.9 is actually shepherd there. So the idea is that He will shepherd them. He shepherd His people, His followers with a rod of iron, that He will lead them and, and they will follow Him because they know His voice. They hear Him and they follow Him. Notice at the end of the verse, verse 15, that He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This points us back to chapter 14 when we, we saw the graphic image of all the nations of the earth gathering together at the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the, the uh, Valley of, of Armageddon. They, they all gather there and they're, they're put into a wine press like grapes and trampled on. And it says there in chapter 14 that their blood flows for 200 miles up to the horse's bridle. It will not be a pretty picture when Christ comes in that sense. At least for them it won't be. So we have in verses 11 through 16 the arrival of the king. And then in verses 17 through 21, the defeat of the beast. The defeat of the beast. We see this graphic picture of these birds being called into play in verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. The angel calls these carrion birds, these birds of prey, and he says, Come, flock around here, Israel. There's going to be a great feast for you. So we have all these eagles and hawks and buzzards and falcons come likely on an empty stomach until they are full of the flesh of men who have opposed God. And so now the war of the great day of God has turned into the great supper of God. It contrasted with the supper that we saw last week 
the supper in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a great supper to be a part of with, with Christ and His bride and all the attendants and all the guests. Here, the beast and his armies all assemble and they'll take part in the supper, but they will be the, the, the ones who will be fed upon, not the ones who will be feasting. And so we see, following this, this call for the birds to come and get ready to eat these things, verse 19, we see, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This takes us back to chapter 16. Remember when the Antichrist, Satan, the dragon, actually sends out these, these, uh, these frog-like demonic creatures out to all the kings of the east and he convinces them to come back to Israel to fight in this big battle. And so all the kings of the earth are gathered ready to make war on behalf of the Antichrist so that they can take out this last stronghold of people who have been defying the Antichrist, not worshiping Him and not taking the mark of the beast. So they gather around to destroy this last stronghold of believers, these Jews, perhaps some Gentiles as well. And this is what happens in verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The very, the very first two captives of Christ when He comes the second time will be the beast and the false prophet. The false prophet is the one who tempted or compelled people to follow the beast, the Antichrist. And they will be the first two thrown alive in the lake of fire. No questions asked. Satan will be next. Chapter 20, verse 10, we'll see that he's also thrown alive into the lake of fire. Following him will be all of the unbelievers of all time. And that will happen after the great white throne judgment. Next time we'll see this, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, we'll see that following the, the, the beast and the false prophet comes a captivity of Satan that he sent to the abyss for a, a 1,000 year incarceration where he can't do anything to the people on the earth. And at the end of that time, they're going, God's going to allow Satan to come for a short period of time to. to, to gather the armies together again, a new set of people, to wage war against Christ. And that will end quickly. Satan will be finally destroyed. He'll be sent to the lake of fire. And then there will be a great white throne judgment where all unbelievers of all time will raise from the dead and stand before Christ at this great white throne judgment. And they will be thrown into the lake of fire with hell or Hades and all the inhabitants that are in it. In verse 21, we see the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of Him who sat on the horse. Now, this could be simply the humans who were the Antichrist's uh, armies or part of His army. But I think it also includes the demons. That Christ will kill them with His Word. That, that no evil force will be 
uh, will be allowed to remain on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And the only evil that there will be will be evil that's within the hearts of the new children that are born during that time. And they will have a responsibility to turn in faith to Christ during the millennium. And if they don't, they will be a part of those evil uh, armies at the end of the tri- at the end of the millennium. We'll talk about that more next time. When you see this judgment of God, this judgment of Christ here in this passage, in such graphic detail, what I don't want you to forget is how many opportunities God gave these people to receive forgiveness of sins. Do you remember in chapter 9, chapter 14, chapter 16, where they saw all these great works of God and they recognized that they were from God? And what did they do? They blasphemed His name and they still failed to repent. These 100-pound hailstones come. They still fail to repent. That one-fourth of the earth is destroyed. That is, one-fourth of the people on the earth are destroyed. And then one-third. So one-half of the entire world's population are destroyed by God. And yet people recognize that and they still fail to repent. So we should be we should be moved emotionally when we see this graphic judgment that comes on people who oppose God. But we should also recognize that God could have destroyed them at the very instant they turned from Him. That is, the very instant instant that they sinned against Him. And yet God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and still they failed to repent. What this should do for us is remind us about God's grace. That He is long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not wish any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When we studied the beast's rise to power, the question that the whole world was asking in chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, who is able to wage war against the beast? Who can stand against the Antichrist since when you kill him, he comes back to life and seems to have more power? We have our answer today. The end of verse 16. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who can stand against the Antichrist? Who can stand against the greatest powers of this earth? Jesus Christ can because He is the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, and He will destroy Him in an instant. It won't even be a battle. Do you feel like the disciples sometimes? That you just wish that Christ would come in judgment, that He would finally rule as King like He is. Why wait so long? Why let me as His followers struggle? Jesus has promised that He will always be with you. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's always with us. But when He raptures us, we will ever be with Him. That is, forever. He will marry us in a formal marriage. That is the church. And He will be with us personally in a better way than He's with us now. There will be no divorce, no separation. Paul says, so we will ever be with the Lord. 
And so we pray with John at the end of chapter 22 of this book. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are the King of all kings. We thank You that You've given that authority. You've given that the keys to the kingdom to Your Son. Or at least You will at the beginning of the, the Millennial Kingdom. He's already proven that, that He has won because He lived a perfect life and He conquered death. And so it's only a matter of time before all the world will see that He truly is the King of all kings. And Father, we have to admit that there are times when it does not feel like that. We have to admit that there are that 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 there are times in our lives where it feels like someone else is on the throne. And Satan is really ruling. He's the ultimate ruler, and we ask for your forgiveness for those types of thoughts and help us to have more faith. Strengthen our resolve to see you more clearly and to believe in you more more readily. I pray that this passage today would be the reflection of our thoughts this week as we think about the struggles in our lives, recognizing that Christ is the King and that He has a plan for us to wed with His church, to join in a permanent union with them. And we look forward to that day, but, but until that day, there, there are struggles, there are complications, there are doubts and fears, and we need You to overcome them in our lives. And we know that the means that You do that is through Your Spirit as He shapes our minds through Your Word. So help us to be bathed in Your Word this week, meditating on it, reflecting on Your power and Christ's future reign. And may that be a joy to our hearts and, and confidence that we need to continue on to follow You, to serve You, even when it doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. We need Your help to do what we cannot do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.